Hello, and welcome to Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts. And on the first segment of today's episode, we bring you a conversation between Acton's Director of Program Outreach, Dan Churchwell, and Nathan Hitchcock, who's an education entrepreneur. Dan and Nathan talk about what role virtue and character development play in education and what the future of education might look like. After that, host Bruce Walker speaks with John J. Miller, the director of the Dow Journalism Program at Hillsdale College and writer at the National Review. They'll be talking about John's newly released anthology called Reading Around, Journalism on Authors, Artists, and Ideas. Bruce and John discuss some of the most interesting books published through the past few centuries and introduce us to some lesser-known writers you can add to your reading list. If you're interested in any of the titles mentioned in this segment, you can find them all linked in our show notes, published every Wednesday at blog.acton.org. My name is Dan Churchwell, Associate Director of Program Outreach here at the Acton Institute, and I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Nathan Hitchcock about some innovations coming to the field of theological education. Nathan, for the last eight years, has been a professor and administrator at Sioux Falls Seminary, and now as an educational entrepreneur with his own company, Seven-Sided Consulting, which exists to help organizations build high-quality systems that utilize competency-based learning and educational crowdsourcing. Nathan, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, good to be with you. I think you and I met about four years ago. Uh, we were both professors in, in the college, Christian college setting, uh, and I think we were attending an Acton event together. I think that's where we first met. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's really great keeping up with you and some of the fascinating things that you've been doing. You're going to be speaking at the upcoming Faith at Work Summit in Chicago. And when, when you first told me a little bit about some of the themes uh, I was really interested. And so can you tell us a little more about this theme of competency-based theological education that you'll be introducing there at the conference? Sure. Well, I never would have imagined myself in the place that I'm at right now, uh, dealing with competency-based education and uh, being an educational consultant. I thought of myself as a professor through and through, uh, but things kind of evolved this way. And I'm really thankful because it's a very exciting field. Uh, A lot of folks don't know what competency-based education is, or they have some kind of misconception about it. But competency-based education, or CBE, uh, sometimes now called competency-based theological education, CBTE, if you're talking about seminaries, um, is really an uh, old but fresh uh, conception of education. It's actually been around since the 1970s, uh, this idea that you could actually measure a student's progress by their demonstrated proficiency in different areas. And uh, it's really taken off in recent years because of certain technologies uh, enabling people to measure progress not so much by the uh, seat hours they have, how much time they spend in a class, or how much the work they do on something, but rather demonstrating proficiency in discrete areas of proficiency. And, you know, if you're having a hard time getting uh, your head around this, uh, think the Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts. If, um, if someone is looking to get a badge in making a fire, you build a fire, right? <laughs> now, that's the way you do it. You don't necessarily read books on building fires, although that might be part of it, and you may watch other people build fires, but you don't get the credit for that. Really, you only get credit, quote-unquote, when you build the actual fire and demonstrate your proficiency in it. And that's, that's the basis of competency-based education. It's a way of measuring things. But really what I've been interested in and some of the organizations I've worked with, what they're interested in is this idea of, um, f- using CBE to free up other modes of learning. Uh, 
And a big piece of it that I'm excited about is how you can take this on the job and how you can take, uh, whether it's pastors in training or missionaries in training or various people in undergrad or graduate schools using CBE to actually learn in ways where you're using folks like mentors and bosses and coworkers, uh, coaches and RDs and, and all sorts of uh, uh, folks. So uh, this is really an exciting time to be in education because there are new possibilities for competency-based education. What, what do you think is driving that innovation then? I mean, it, um, competency-based, uh, you know, uh, there's a, a great essay by Albert J. Nock called The Disadvantage of Being Educated. And he talks a little bit there about the distinction between training and education. And it was written in the early 30s, so it's quite old. And I know you think that, you know, we're kind of getting back to competency-based education. But one thing that Nock makes very clear is that we shouldn't, you know, differentiate training, or excuse me, that we should differentiate training from education, that there there are two different kinds of things. And it sounds here uh, more like you're talking about training and that there are certain things that you can be trained in. Uh, did you agree with his assessment that education and training are, are two distinct things? Yeah, there are a number of critics out there about uh, of, of traditional education, whatever uh, that's conceived as. And, and I think some of these criticisms are legitimate. Education can very easily degenerate into something where it's merely about uh, cognitive sets. It's merely about uh, regurgitation or perhaps um, just understanding some concepts but not actually applying it so that it's not skill-based, sufficiently skill-based. And more than that, and this is a great concern of mine, that education um, loses the character training. And I think what's going on here is that CBE is, on one hand, becoming popular because it's so efficient. It allows a lot of students, especially non-traditional students, to work at their own uh, pace. It allows students to transfer their credentials more easily because competencies are named really well, or at least they should be named very well, so people can actually understand what you were studying and what you're proficient in. But I think there's also a desire for greater, not just flexibility, but um, context. That is, people want to have a robust sense or a robust sense of training, a robust sense of education, and however uh, you want to define those terms, the idea is that it's actually embodied. There's a kind of deeper knowledge where you're not just learning about things, but you're becoming something else. And, uh, and again, that's where it's exciting, where competency-based education is being used for that sort of uh, deeper incarnate sense of work. And, and, and that's what's super intriguing to me because, you know, if, if, if you're training in welding or you're training in heart surgery, there, there's an element where you can go and witness that happening and see if there is, you know, if the weld is smooth and lacks cracks, all that. And if the patient comes out of surgery um, healed, if you will. But how do you do that with virtue based education or, or something, you know, character based education? Uh, Aristotle, you know, reminds us that. Uh, at the end of, you know, the way to judge a life that is truly virtuous is only at its end. And it, it's hard for me to get, you know, you, you talk about in, in one of your writings that um, you can gauge this objectively through content and, and performance in uh, measuring these ideas. And how, how do you do that? Tell me about that. It's just, it's just fascinating to me. <laughs> yeah, you know, some of these assessments are pretty easy to set up. Um, when you're thinking in the cognitive realm, the cognitive domain, as Bloom called it, uh, you can set up multiple choice, and you can set up short answer and true-false and what have you, and that's fine. There are better and worse ways of doing that, but educators have a pretty good sense of that. When it comes to something like skills or abilities, 
trying to measure those gets a little more difficult, but, but the idea is pretty basic. You observe somebody doing that. You get somebody who's a uh, qualified specialist, and that person observes the person doing it and then says, yes, indeed, this person can do that, whether that's running Microsoft Word or welding or what have you. I think assessing character is more difficult. And just as building character is more difficult, assessing it can be quite difficult because it seems very subjective on one level. And yet, uh, virtue is so evident to people. We tend to have a pretty good feel about whether somebody has been built up in a certain way, especially if we know them. And uh, this is really a big paradigm shift for me. That when I was a seminary professor and we began experimenting with things in what we were calling the Kairos Project, which was our competency-based program, uh, we saw in Kairos that the professors who were the faculty mentors were pretty good when it came to assessing knowledge. And we were okay when it came to assessing skills. But when it came to assessing character, we were not the best ones. And the reason why is because we didn't really have the long-term relationship with students, and we didn't see them on a daily basis or a weekly basis. But the people who did were those who were personal mentors or ministry mentors, people who were there on the ground with them. They saw them on a frequent basis. They were sharing life together. And uh, it turns out that even though I had a terminal degree, I wasn't the one most qualified to do character assessment to really feed into a person and then to evaluate them. Rather, uh, the persons they had known longest, these virtuous people in their lives, they were actually the ones who were most qualified to do so. And, and you've mentioned that several seminaries are trying to implement some fashion of this that you're working with. Uh, tell me about how, what is the desire for the, like the administrators or why are they wanting to bring this into their institution? What, what's the payoff? What's the gain for them, do you think? Yeah, I'll be at Faith at Work Summit next month, um, which will be a really uh, interesting event to talk about some of these things. What I'm presenting on there is um, some initial findings from three seminaries, Northwest Baptist, Sioux Falls Seminary, and Grace Theological Seminary in Indiana. And I'm looking at how they've used this competency-based model to achieve one of their objectives, which is to have a greater uh, faith work integration. That is, to have their students more aware of issues like stewardship and vocation, um, the marketplace and economics, uh, just understanding finances. So they're actually aiming for some of these things, as, as other seminaries are now. But I was curious to see whether this competency-based model and, more than that, the mentor-based model that those three were using was actually achieving these aims better than a traditional school. Now, it seems, though, that, that that's going to take a lot of manpower, man hours. You know, a lot of the assessments, um, the critique of assessments is, you know, it, um, they're easy to assess. You're, you're able to grade them quickly if there's a nice rubric, um, but you can get through a lot of students quickly. For this model, it seems if you're going to be looking at somebody's character or thinking about and gaining all of the, the wisdom and opinions of mentors and professors, that's very time-consuming. Am, am I thinking about that rightly? Or Well, yes and no. Um, it is time-consuming for those who know them quite well. If you're looking at character assessment, uh, it has to be longitudinal. That's one of the things that I argue for. Most character assessment uh, pieces need to be longitudinal, not just kind of a snapshot. Um, they need to be personal. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah, that character absolutely. is personal. Uh, you, uh, folks need to engage with the student on a personal level. 
uh, in some pretty deep ways and sometimes, honestly, invasive ways. Uh, some of the things that we had in our Sioux Falls Seminary curriculum were things that you don't normally see uh, in, in seminary curricula, uh, things such as uh, a student having a sense of uh, control over their finances, knowing how to pay off their debt and how, how to live within their means. We actually wanted demonstrated proof of this. Well, honestly, I don't want to do that as a professor. I don't have the, the time for that, perhaps, but I, I also don't have uh, the willpower, shall we say. <laughs> That's not the area I feel called into. Uh, but there are certainly mentors who do that very thing. Um, but we had other character things where they were being assessed by these mentors, but it turns out that the mentors, that was their joy. They saw that as their, their ministry. They saw that as, as their gift to the church, where it actually freed up a lot of time for us as the faculty because we weren't in charge of those competencies anymore, or at least evaluating them. It actually freed up time, and that in conjunction with some automation that we were using was actually giving us much more bandwidth. Now, was this mentoring required? Yeah, yeah, for actually all three of these programs um, at Northwest Baptist and Sioux Falls Seminary and Grace Theological Seminary, mentoring is required. And at some of these schools, uh, the students are actually required to be in ministry, that is professional ministry. They're supposed to actually have a job while they're in seminary. And uh, students are discouraged from enrolling in seminary unless they have some kind of workplace. Uh, and they are required to have mentors in that workplace because the idea is this is going to be an on-the-job experience. It's not just um, in the classroom. In fact, it's um, very much not in the classroom. It's not residential-based, typically. It's uh, it's going to be on the job, which means that you need on-the-job people. H- have you thought about with, with those administrators or those, uh, have they talked about the idea of it being required versus organic and the difference that that might make? If, if, for example, I have multiple, you know, business mentors each stage of my career and life, I can look back at people that have spoken, but usually uh, spoken into my life, but usually it's I've let them in, if you will. But it, if you require that, is, is that a different kind of relationship? Or do, or do you think you can get some of the same honesty, transparency, and uh, those kinds of assessments with something that's required? That, that's what's really intriguing to me in, in this model. We were really pleased at Sioux Falls Seminary that the students typically picked really good mentors, hmm. really competent men and women who were encouraging them, who were helping them, who were evaluating and doing all these things pretty well um, and pretty honestly. We didn't see very much abuse at all. And those were people outside? Could, could they choose somebody outside of the organization? Oh, very much so. Okay, okay. So they could find another pastor or, or a friend or somebody in the marketplace, um, and they just had to agree to take part in this kind of assessment. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. And I know of some cases at these schools where a mentor was denied. They were nominated but was denied. Uh, perhaps they were related in some way or perhaps just it wasn't looking like a good fit. I also know of a number of cases in which a student would drop a mentor. It turns out that uh, they weren't a good fit for this program, that they were uh, very personal, but they weren't good for a formal role. Or perhaps they realized that this is not really the person I want to grow up to be like uh, in my ministry or uh, in my character. Um, I walked with a student pretty closely over the really a couple years as uh, he had to make the difficult decision of whether or not to turn a campus of a multi-site church into its own independent church. And that created a lot of strain on the mentor team because he was using these guys as mentors, the, the, the pastors he was working with. And, um, again, I was really pleased that um, he, he used this. Um, first of all, he used this to fulfill the curriculum. <laughs> There's a good bit of the curriculum that was completed through this whole process, including conflict resolution. Imagine that. Um, 
but he, more than that, he found a way of using these mentors in the process and then ultimately finding other mentors who were able to help him in that next stage. Well, we have time for one last question and, and, and wrap it up for me. How, how do you think this is um, going to change or, or help add to some of the, you know, the creative destruction that's happening a lot in higher ed, specifically Christian higher ed now in, at the MDiv level, et cetera. What, what is the benefit? Tell, tell me what you, you're hoping in your work, in your consulting and working with these, these uh, schools, what, what is the hope for education, you know, five, 10 years down the road? What, what, what are we going towards? I'm convinced that competency-based education, especially with this network-based, whether it's mentor-based or whether it's larger than that, a larger constellation, I think that's going to be the way of the future. Uh, students are approaching education differently now. The kind of disruption that's happened because of the information age, that revolution, I think, is upending things. and People need to be educated and re-educated pretty frequently, but they don't have the liberty of actually displacing themselves and moving to a campus or signing up for a full-time program or things like that. So flexibility will be imperative. But more than that, I think people really want to have an integrated education, not just something that they, uh, they go online every once in a while and watch a video and not simply a, a night class, but something that actually touches on their actual life so that they don't have to um, shift gears dramatically, but rather can, uh, can have these things go together. And in the end, it looks like an integrated life where people are not just learning in a sort of uh, cognitive space or uh, some kind of ivory tower, but rather they're learning on the ground. And in the end, this might mean um, more than just simply they have a kind of future in a new type of work, but it might actually mean that they love their present work. Well, Nathan, thank you for the, taking the chance to uh, talk to us today. We really love you know, some of the, these ideas. I, I can't wait to follow you over the next uh, five to 10 years to see how these assessments develop. We'll put a link up to uh, Seven Sided Consulting uh, for you on our blog. And uh, we look forward to, I, I will personally uh, get to see you again in October 11th through the 13th at the Faith at Work Summit in Chicago. Thanks again, Nathan. Yeah, thanks. Looking forward to it. You see it in everything from political rhetoric to Hollywood films. Business is the bad guy. But is this really true? From the smallest mom and pop shop to the largest e-commerce storefronts, businesses are an essential pillar to a free and flourishing society. Join us on October 18 in Grand Rapids for a one-day conference on the good that business does. Through panel discussions, interviews, and a luncheon, we'll look at topics such as the theological underpinnings of work, the meaning and dignity of work, and the role of the entrepreneur. Register now at actin.org events. Hello, this is Bruce Edward Walker, and today I'm talking with John J. Miller, and he is the director of the Dow Journalism Program at Hillsdale College, a writer for National Review, and the author of several books, including this new anthology of some of his literary journalism called Reading Around, Journalism on Authors, Artists, and Ideas. And I notice you have the Oxford comma in there, John. Welcome to the show. Hi, uh, hi, Bruce. Thanks for having me on. I'm a big, I'm a big fan of the Acton Institute, so I'm thrilled to be here. Well, terrific. And I, I have to tell you that it's it's always a tremendous uh, rush for me when I pick up the Wall Street Journal or the National Review, and there's a nice piece in there uh, that you have written on different literary characters through through the years. And the the wonderful thing about this book, uh, for me at least, is that you take 
a lot of your old essays for the National Review, the Claremont Review of Books, and uh, the Wall Street Journal, and you place them in a chronological order. So you sent, you sort of kind of get a history of, of literature through the eyes of a, uh, a Virgil, so to speak, who walks you through the centuries of, of great literature and, and some not-so-great literature, even some potboilers as well. Well, thanks. I'm, I'm glad you like the organization because I was I wasn't quite sure how to put this this anthology of, of of my work together. I'm I'm one of these people who believes that politics is downstream from culture. And although at National Review, most of my journalism in my professional career is focused on politics and policy and and elections and 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 candidates and office holders and and, and this sort of thing, uh, I've I've always tried to make time for cultural reporting on on authors and artists and 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 even music and uh, and, and and write about it for for National Review and the Wall Street Journal and and this is the work I've I've enjoyed the most probably as a as a writer um, it hasn't quite paid the bills the way uh, some other work has but um, but I've really enjoyed it and um, uh, Thought I finally had enough content for for a whole book, and so we uh, uh, put it together as uh, as as reading around. Let, let's delve into the 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 book itself, and uh, you start out speaking of Gilgamesh, and then you move through a, a large uh, portion of horror fiction, beginning with uh, uh, Vampire and Frankenstein, and uh, moving into H.P. Lovecraft. So, so the book, because of its organization, as you suggested, provides a kind of idiosyncratic history of of, of literature, and I should say, highly idiosyncratic. There, there are there are lots and lots of holes. Well, for the time being, yeah, yeah maybe, you know, I'm sticking with it. But it starts with the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is which is just about the oldest piece of literature anywhere. And uh, goes all the way up through through contemporary writers, still living authors, and so on. And 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 you'll see, I have a I have a I have a, I have a real fondness for for genre literature. So there's lots of science fiction in here. There's there's horror, um, and 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 more. And and so in in, in the horror category, we get Edgar Allan Poe, H.P. Lovecraft, uh, Robert Aikman. Um, some of these guys would would not have approved of the term horror for their own for their own literature. Aikman among them, for example. But but there's there are some really classic works in in, in that field as well, such as uh, uh, Frankenstein and Dracula, and, uh, and and I write about them all, or as many as I can. Well, uh, I reread your essay on Frankenstein today, and I think it, it, it's very telling. And and to me, it it kind of pinpoints what. Uh, a conservative individual or uh, even an Acton-type libertarian would, would see as being very telling in your, your view of literature in that uh, you seem to, uh, like our, our mutual friend Russell Kirk would say, uh, recognize an enduring moral order. Well, Frankenstein is a terrific novel. Uh, it's, it's it's great fun to read, and it's also profound. And it was it was written 200 years ago, and it's had remarkable staying power. Uh, it's a pioneering book of science fiction, uh, of course, has has elements of horror in it as well. But it's fundamentally about the problem of what happens when when you have science without ethics, and and all that can all that can go wrong, and 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 the terrible unintended consequences of 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 that. And uh, the the essay on on Frankenstein in this volume, reading around, 
uh, talks about the themes of Frankenstein, but also tells the, the fascinating backstory behind how, how the book was written. The author, of course, is Mary Shelley, who was married to um, a Percy Shelley, one of the great romantic poets of, of his time. And they were friends with Lord Byron and how they all traipsed off to, to Switzerland and, and started telling ghost stories. And, and out of this, this, this amazing group of, of, of people and writers who, who are working together, out of this comes a teenage girl, Mary Shelley, who writes the most lasting work of all. And um, um, they, 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 were, uh, they, they were troubled people in lots of ways, these folks. Uh, Shelley and Byron were, were quite abusive toward the women in their lives they 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 would they would they would pick them up and abandon them and so there's this there's this story of of irresponsibility and 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 free love and and and, and the problems that 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 all cling, cling to that and it's, it's impossible not to to look at this story and these people and what they're doing to each other and think well obviously that's how frankenstein emerged from 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 that from that venue so so Mary Shelley's deeply in love with her husband but she also kind of is learning about his character and um in the novel Frankenstein of course we have a we have a kind of a creation a kind of uh, motherless birth and a, a kind of um, abandonment, and um, so, so so the story behind the book is fascinating. I help it. I think I think it illuminates our, our our reading of 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 the novel Frankenstein as well. It, it comes across in in your essay on this that it's almost an allegory for uh, Shelley's observation of what she perceives as unvirtuous living. Well, they were they they were dissolute. Especially the uh, the men in 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 this um, in this situation, and and uh, the essay is called the monsters, right? Which is a, which is of course a reference to Frankenstein's monster, but but also the the morality of of of, of Shelley and Byron, and uh, the women in in their stories um, uh, outlived them in in many cases. Uh, a couple did not, but. Um, um, Mary Shelley had a long life after her her husband Percy Shelley, the poet, uh, died in a in a in a boating accident. He died young, which which um, you know dying young has been great for the reputation of lots of rock stars, and I don't think it hurt Percy Shelley either. Uh, but Mary Shelley lived for a long time, and and she, and she revered her husband and his work, and and she's responsible for collecting it and publishing it, and 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 contributed to his reputation in a lot of ways. But she also understood the problems of the way he he chose to live, and 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 later in life she became a she became a Christian, and. Um, um, there was uh, uh, the, 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 there, there's a, there's an anecdote about how how late in life uh, she, she had a son by by Percy Shelley and and a friend of hers uh, met Mary Shelley and said oh my gosh you know what a prodigy this person must be to have had such you know two great parents one the you know one of the greatest poets in the English language and then you know the mom is the, the author of Frankenstein what bright future this um, this this boy must have. Um, and you know he'll 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 be a he'll be a great person. And Mary Shelley just said, "I hope he's an ordinary person," um, <laughs> because because she yearned for kind of an ordinary life that um, um, that she didn't have when she was young. So let let let's move into the the twentieth century, and uh, you write about H.P. Lovecraft as uh, and and you. 
you don't uh, paint a portrait of him as being a a great writer. You, I think, you say something to the effect that he never met an adjective that he that he didn't use. Yeah, Lovecraft is an acquired taste, and and I acquired it when I was a teenager, and that might be the sweet spot for for first starting to uh, to read Lovecraft. So I've always been fond of Lovecraft, and his prose style is is florid. It's it's ornate. It's it's long winded in certain ways, and um, I'm not sure if I were picking him up for the, picking him up for the first time now. I'd have a lot of tolerance for it, frankly. But um, but I'm quite fond of it, having having kind of grown up with it and, and and read it over and over across the years. I think it's quite telling that uh, you're you're having said that the contemporary writer who is most influenced by him would be Tom Ligotti, and uh, there there's no mention of Ligotti in, in reading around. Not many people have heard of Tom Ligotti. I'm a little surprised that you you know of him. I mean, he's a friend of mine, so okay, <laughs> I, we used to work together. He's he's a contemporary. Uh, a writer of horror fiction, and um, I've only dipped a little bit into him. Um, he's very Lovecraftian in his in his worldview, uh, as I understand it. Um, he's one of these authors I've kind of marked for uh, further further investigation. What what makes Lovecraft so compelling is is this this terrible vision of the universe that he has about its its, its godlessness and different and. and, and yeah. yeah, and it's 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 what you know, and and, and I should say, I'm, you know, I'm a church-going Catholic, but that's the the power of his work comes from the terrorizing picture of this universe he creates. It's haunting and troubling, and um, um, it, it's given me a lot to wrestle with over the years. And uh, um, you know, meanwhile, he's telling some pretty good stories about uh, about monsters and aliens and 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 so forth. But behind it all is this. This this philosophy that um, has spurred a lot of thinking on on, on my own part, and um, and so I've always appreciated Lovecraft, and I've, I've I've written a fair amount about him, and I think there are three essays on him in 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 this book. Well, let, let's move on to uh, another genre, and you uh, you you have an essay in there on on Brad Thor. How does that square with the conservative reader? Well, Brad Thor is a, a best-selling author right now. Has a book come out uh, every summer. Uh, launches onto the to the New York Times bestseller list. He's he's kind of a um, modern day Tom Clancy, you know, kind of stories ripped from the headlines, kind of national security thrillers, uh, this sort of thing. The books are a lot of fun. I always learn from them, and uh, about 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 threats that are in the world, threats to the United States, and so forth. And um, Brad's a political writer. He he he's dealing with political problems, international problems in our own time. And um, conservatives have always been drawn to this kind of literature. I think the the military thriller, the um, the kind of the kind of fiction that, that that's willing to take a, a a close look at the realities of the world and and, and the threats to America and, and 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 write about them in ways that are gripping. I mean, if, if you like a if you like a good um, a good movie of that sort, um, you know, Brad Thor is a novelist for you, and 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 you know there are others like him. Daniel Silva comes to mind, and and, and of course, you know, Vince Flynn, the late Vince Flynn, would count as well. But Brad Thor is uh, is one of the best, and um, I had the idea to do a profile of him for National Review a few years ago. Who is this guy who's 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 writing these these compelling books that are showing up in the bestseller list, and and what you know what does he think about about the world we're in right now, and and so it's a the the piece is a is a bit of a profile of him and analysis of, of his work and trying to explain um, his uh, his popularity. Well, one of the things that I noticed missing from your book was uh, you you wrote a wonderful essay on Wendell Berry for National Review 
a couple of years ago, and uh, maybe you just ran out of space? Yeah, I can't fit in everything. And um, that's one that, that arguably would belong in here and, and just didn't fit. I'm, I'm fond of that piece. Um, Wendell Berry, of course, a, a living novelist and poet and essayist. He's a liberal, but he's one of these liberals. Uh, well, he's more of an agrarian. Yeah. I mean, many conservatives are fond of him. A certain type of conservative is quite fond of Wendell Berry. And this this puzzles him a little bit. Um, he, he likes the readers and, and, and I think doesn't mind the attention, but he, at a certain level he doesn't quite get it. At any rate, I wanted to figure that out myself. And I, I'd made the observation that this was going on. And I noticed when I, when I started uh, working at Hillsdale College, I noticed that he had a lot of admirers here on campus among the quite uh, conservative student body and faculty. And so I wanted to figure that out a little bit and actually called him up and said, can I come down and visit with you? And, and we, we exchanged some letters. That's how he likes to work. He doesn't like email. I'm not even sure he has an email account. At any rate, um, I went and visited with him at his home, and, and, and we, met on a, we met on a Sunday and uh, sat on his porch and, 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 and did an interview. And, uh, and so, so, the, so, so I wrote about him for National Review. But alas, you've got to, uh, you've got to go into the archives of National Review to read that one. <laughs> For the time being. Right, until uh, until the next one of these comes out, I suppose. Well, I'm talking to John J. Miller, who uh, is the author of the latest anthology of his work called Reading Around. It's journalism on authors, artists, and ideas. And it, it works really well, I think, John, as a syllabus for conservative readers, for those who just want to jump into the pool of literature and they don't necessarily want to... Uh, read the dross that's out there. They, they want to focus on material that will not offend their conservative or their Christian sensibilities. I mean, they can have them challenged, but they still, as in Lovecraft, but not necessarily offended by a, a different worldview. I mean, would you would you consider that a fair assessment? Yeah, I, I think so. I think that certainly some of my favorite writers are are, are ones who who challenge some of my own sensibilities. Um, but one, one, one of the reasons I wanted to put this book out is because uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big reader myself. I'm always, I'm always reading something. It's, it's one of my, my big hobbies. And because I'll never get to all the books I want to read, I've got to be quite selective. And I spend a lot of time thinking about what I want to read and reading book reviews and getting recommendations from friends and so forth. Because if you read a book, that's an investment of hours and hours and hours. And you know, some some of these books are, are you know, Moby Dick. You know, that's that's a <laughs> that's a that's a full time job for a week just about. Yes. So I spend a lot of time thinking about how I'm going to use that time, and I'm always looking for advice. One of the benefits of this book, I thought, is other readers facing the same kind of plight, which I suppose describes most readers, um, might dip into this one, and uh, they'll find some things that might interest them. Maybe they'll they'll go on and read about them and uh, and, and and profit from them. Well, terrific. John J. Miller, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks so much for having me on. You bet. John J. Miller is director of the Dow Journalism Program at Hillsdale College, a writer for National Review, and the author of several books, including his latest, Reading Around, Journalism on Authors, Artists, and Ideas. And for the Acton Institute, I'm Bruce Edward Walker. Thank you for listening today. If you want to learn more about the Acton Institute and what we do, visit our website at acton.org.
If you like our podcast, don't forget to give us a rating on iTunes and let your friends know that they can now listen to Radio Free Acton on their favorite podcast directory, as well as Spotify and YouTube. This episode is produced by Caroline Roberts with audio mixing by Nathan Moore.